wonderful truth that um, we sing because God sings. And uh, we're, he's not different from us. He's made us in his image. So he's made us to sing because he sings. Wonderful, wonderful thing to keep in mind. And the reality is, uh, typically people don't sing for nothing, right? They have a reason to sing. It's something inside of them that moves them to sing. And so there are things that move God to sing, and he works in us that we might be moved by the same things that we would sing because of what moves him to sing. And the Bible actually tells us in Hebrews that Jesus, our great older brother, sings over us. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful truth, and appreciate that encouragement, that reminder of that. So if you would turn to Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 7. We want to continue going through the book of Daniel. We're going through several different books at the same time right now. And we're doing that because... Of all that's going on in our country, um, I want to encourage us in various ways. Um, Going through the book of Daniel and Revelation helps us to think about the big picture of what God is up to and what we can trust him for and what we can even anticipate. Um, The book of Acts and 1 Corinthians helps us to uh, think about the hostility that there is toward the church, and yet uh, there's not only issues... Uh, from without, there are issues within the church that have to be addressed. And so all of these books that we're looking at and going through are meant to encourage us and challenge us and help us to think about the kinds of truths that we need to believe, embrace, trust, and apply as we seek to trust God and and love whatever is happening around us. Uh, What I'd like to talk about in light of Daniel chapter 7 is about fantastic beasts and what will happen to them. Uh, Some of you may uh, have viewed some of the Fantastic Beasts movies. I think there's a new one coming out or has just come out. Um, In those movies and in those stories by J.K. Rowling, um, those are fictional beasts. Those are made-up beasts. But the beasts that we find in Daniel chapter 7 are uh, not fictional Uh, They're real, real symbols that we need to understand what they point to and and why they're significant. So the beasts themselves or the pictures themselves are not real, but they point to real things and real entities and realities that God wants us to know about. And so God has given us uh, this story, you could say, of fantastic beasts that we need to think about why does God talk this way. And what does God want us to think and believe and do in light of this? I speak in terms of story because um, there's a sense in which a part of what we're going to read today uh, was, was prophecy at the time of Daniel, but is history for us, and yet not all of it. Uh, history is looking back on the past and seeing what God ordained in the past. Prophecy is looking toward the future and seeing what God ordains for the future. And both both history and prophecy are meant to encourage us to trust God today. We look back on God's faithfulness. We look forward to what God promises us in the future. And God says, trust me for today. Trust me for all that you need today. And love in the ways that I call you to love. 
And so uh, prophecy is important because prophecy is a prediction of history. And so we want to look at that this morning, and I'd like to read for us Daniel chapter 7. And so if you'd like to stand and stretch your legs, you're welcome to. If if you don't want to, you don't have to. But it's a way to uh, get a little stretch in before we get into this message and also honor the Lord in in light of his word. But Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, says this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, Another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, 
are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As I've said, prophecy is meant to encourage us to live in the ways that God calls us to live. If you read at the end of Second Peter, Peter talks about the fact that one day all these things will be burned up. And he says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So for Peter and the apostles, they would say, God tells us the future that we might live today differently. So we trust God for what he's promised us and we seek to obey his commands and to honor him with our lives. But one of the first things that stood out to me as I read this chapter and thought about it this week is that uh, initially, uh, Daniel's response to the vision was alarm. Uh, If you notice in verse 15, he says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. Then in verse 28, Uh, It says, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And so obviously Daniel was a man of faith and God didn't simply give this vision to Daniel to alarm him. And yet there were things about it that were alarming. And so one of the question comes, can I be alarmed and yet at peace? Can I be disturbed 
and yet at peace? And I think the answer is yes, because there are things that are happening in our own country today that are alarming to me and alarming maybe to you too, alarming to a lot of people because of uh, things that are happening in our country that we never expected to happen. People talking in ways we never expected people to talk. People wanting to see things happen that we never imagined. People wanting to see happen. And so they are alarming. And yet the Bible tells us that everything has been ordained by God. Um, In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist is talking about his own personal life, but it applies to all of history when he says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Yet as yet there was not one of them. So the book, the uh, the birth of little Liberty, uh, the Bible says that all her days have been ordained for her. And it's the same for all of us. And yet at the same time, in Psalm 7, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So that he ordains history, and yet he's not indifferent to what's going on. He's indignant. It angers him to see the sin and all that's transpiring in the world. And yet he's ordained it all. It says in 1 Timothy 6.15, though, that this God who has indignation every day because of the things that are happening in the world, yet he's sovereign over all those things. And it says in 1 Timothy 6, he who is the blessed or, or happy, it's another way to translate blessed, and only sovereign. So, God is perfectly at peace. God is perfectly happy. He's not, uh, his happiness is not undermined by what's happening in the world, and yet he's ordained it, and he has indignation over it. And so, therefore, I can be justly angered at injustice and evil and sin and be rightly alarmed at the kinds of things that are happening around me and yet still have happiness in God. Rejoice always and have peace because that is a reflection of the the very God that created us and has redeemed us. And so what I'd like to do is to encourage us to think about what God tells us in this chapter that we might uh, appropriately uh, see and be grieved over what's going on, and yet still have peace and joy even in the midst of it. Uh, This chapter can be broken up um, in two sections. Verses 1 through 14 record the dream that Daniel has. Earlier in the book, uh, Daniel is interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. In this case, he is having the dream himself, and in the midst of the dream, uh, he gets the interpretation to the dream. And that's what the second part of the chapter highlights for us. Um, But as I uh, said earlier, uh, the dream that Daniel has is a dream about the future. And the dream about the future is a prophecy which is basically God telling us the story before it happens. It's history predicted. And so that's what I want us to think about is both in terms of story and history because part of the word history is story, right? And it's important that we uh, believe the story as God tells us the story uh, because it's meant to strengthen our faith 
enable us to love in the midst of what is taking place. And so the first point that I want to make from this chapter, there's a lot we could uh, touch on, but I'll just pick out a few things. And the first thing is the picture that we have here that uh, from this dream that Daniel has is it makes the point that history is linear. It's moving in a line. Um, Many of you probably have seen or heard about the movie Groundhog Day. I haven't ever actually seen the movie, but I know the story. Uh, in the story, there's a reporter. I think he's a weatherman. He goes to uh, Pennsylvania to uh, see what's going to happen with the groundhog on February 2nd. And according to the story, uh, he gets caught in a time loop. And February 2nd happens over and over and over again. But at some point, it does end. But it's interesting. I was talking to my neighbor uh, yesterday, who happens to look at life through the lens of Buddhism, and he was talking about reincarnation and and uh, this diff- this kind of life cycle where things, in, in some sense, repeat themselves, and yet you have the hope that things will get some better, even as those things are repeated. And the question is, is that really what's going to happen? Is that really the story of the world? Is that really how we should look at history as, as simply cyclical? Just same thing happening over and over and over again. Should we uh, see it as a dead end? You know, a lot of people would say, yeah, you live, you die, and it's done. That's the end of history, so to speak. Well, the Bible tells us in all kinds of ways that no, history is not simply the same thing happening over and over again, like we're in, you know, all caught in a time loop in Groundhog Day, nor is it a dead end where we die and there's nothing else to come. But it's linear, linear in the sense that it's moving toward a goal. It's going to have a conclusion. It's going to have a consummation. And therefore, what is taking place in this stream is it talks about the fact at the very beginning of Daniel 7 that Daniel has a dream where he sees four beasts coming up out of the great sea. So four winds are uh, stirring up the great sea, which many people think was the Mediterranean being referenced there, and four beasts come out of the sea. But it's not like they come out all at once, but they come out successively, one at a time, one following the other. And many people tie this to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has the the, uh, dream of a statue that is divided into four parts. And they are successive uh, kingdoms. And so what we see pictured here is a linear history where uh, kingdoms arise one after the other. And so um, there's a story being told. In other words, there's, there's a beginning of the story, there's a middle of the story, there's an end of the story. And it's interesting when you think about the idea of stories is that many people would say there are key elements to a good story. And they'll talk about uh, writing a good story and you need a a protagonist, which is the hero of the story. You need an antagonist, which is the villain of the story. And you need, uh, you know, something that kind of sets everything off in a certain trajectory. You need a kind of inciting action. And you need some kind of conflict that's running on every page of the story until you get to the resolution. And you have to ask yourself, why do we think, why do many people think that that's what makes up a good story? 
It's because there is a grand story behind every good story. There's a true story behind every good story. It's kind of like Tolkien told told C.S. Lewis, there's a grand myth behind all the other myths, but the grand myth is true. The other myths aren't. And so there's a grand story behind everything, and it has a protagonist. It has an antagonist. It has uh, an event that started everything off, and it has conflict, and it has resolution. And so it's moving. It's a story that's moving in a direction. And so what we see here is, if you look at this story in the context of the Bible, who is the protagonist? Well, according to Daniel 7, it's called, he's called the Son of Man. And we know that Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Who's the antagonist? Well, in this story, he's referred to both in terms of beasts and a little horn. And many would point to uh, the Antichrist who points to Satan as the villain. Obviously, you, a- you ask, might ask, well, what kicked everything off? Well, what kicked everything off was Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the fall, where Satan comes into the garden. He deceives Eve, who uh, eats from the tree, offers it to her husband. Uh, Adam knowingly, consciously rebels, And God judges them and judges the earth, but promises a redeemer, promises a hero who would show up on the scene and restore everything. And from that point on, you have the conflict in history, the conflict between the righteous and the wicked, as uh, Sean read about. You have the conflict between the world kingdoms and the kingdom of God. But ultimately, there's going to be a resolution. There's going to be a defeat, a destruction of all the ungodly kingdoms of the world. And the one kingdom that will survive will be the kingdom of the Son of Man or the Ancient of Days or the highest one, as he's referred to in Daniel chapter 7. And the encouraging thing in all this is that seven or eight times in this chapter, Uh, Daniel says, I kept looking and I saw this. I kept looking and I saw that. I kept looking and I saw this. That's a way of saying we need to keep looking at what God says is going to happen. And we need to think about it. We need to meditate on it. And we need to trust God for the good things that he's promised us. We have to believe God's narrative. Regardless of what the other narratives are, regardless of what's happening on Twitter or not happening on Twitter, whatever the narrative may be in society, we need to believe God's narrative about what is happening and keep our eyes on that. Keep looking at that and let it encourage us. Let it give us peace. Let it give us joy in the midst of a very, very uh, difficult time. I mean, the picture of these beasts coming out of the sea with the winds blowing furiously is a picture of chaos. A lot of times history looks very, very chaotic. It looks like it's just random. But the Bible says, no, uh, God's at work and there is a consummation coming. And so history is linear. But history is also, you might say, beastly. And it's very much about 
the villain of the story. It's about the Antichrist. It's interesting that um, a lot of people will point to uh, Hitler as a type of what we see going on in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, you've got four kingdoms. You've got the kingdom that is represented as a lion with eagle's uh, wings. And that appears to be the kingdom of Babylon. And the picture there is a picture of the king of beasts, the lion, and the king of the birds, the eagle. And so it's a picture of majestic power. Then you've got the, the, um, the kingdom, um, the second kingdom that looks like a bear. It has um, uh, three ribs in its mouth and it's raised up on one side. And many will point to that as the kingdom of Medo-Persia that actually defeated Babylon and rose after them. And the picture of the bear, uh, you know, being told to consume much meat is a picture of greediness, just wanting more and more. Then you've got the picture, the third um, kingdom, which is the picture of the lion or the leopard, excuse me, not the lion, the leopard or the panther, as, as some translate it, which has four wings on its back and four heads. And that is understood to be the kingdom of Alexander the Great uh, that arose after the kingdom of Persia. And it's a picture of speed. And people will look at how quickly Alexander the Great conquered uh, what he conquered. And then it was divided up because he died very young. And it was divided up into four different kingdoms, four heads. So you've got... The wings that picture speed, the four heads that picture what happened afterwards. But then you have the fourth kingdom that's referenced here, which isn't said, it can't be described in terms of it's like this animal. It can't be tied to a particular animal. It's so fierce and so different. And so it's simply described as having iron teeth and, and bronze claws and as basically crushing everything and having a universal reign. So it's the picture of absolute universal dominance. That's the picture that we have here. And that's the way most people understand what took place on a more limited basis with Rome. That Rome had a crushing effect on the ancient world and had a vast reach. And yet, um, many would say that the picture here isn't simply limited to ancient Rome, but that the ten horns coming out of that actually are a way of talking about the, uh, a complete number of kingdoms that would arise following that ancient Roman Empire that would ultimately lead to the final, you could say, Roman crushing dominant kingdom which would be the kingdom of the little horn or the kingdom of the Antichrist. So one way to understand this, and obviously with prophecy there are all all kinds of differences of opinion on what all these things mean, but it seems to fit well in light of all, for me, in light of all that the Bible says, that we have a picture here of the little horn being, excuse me, the Antichrist. And many people would say that prophecy is interesting in that it can have an immediate fulfillment 
other kinds of repeated similar fulfillments and an ultimate fulfillment. Uh, some will point to Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted the Jewish people um, and resulted in the celebration of Hanukkah as being an expression of the little horn. Others would also say Julius Caesar in the Roman Empire was a, an expression of the little horn. Others would say, as I mentioned just a minute ago, Hitler was an expression of the little horn, the Antichrist, because he desired world domination. He opposed the Jews. He tried to wipe out the Jewish people, and he was um, anti-Christian. Even though he portrayed himself as being favorable toward Christians, his personal view was that Christianity was a religion fit only for slaves. He said that Christianity was a rebellion against the basic truth of the survival of the fittest. And he said that it was his desire to wipe out Christianity. Why? Well, because he believed it was a hindrance to his own power. That he could not um, subdue them with science and reason, so he would crush them. That he might have the ascendancy. And so that's why people will look at Hitler and say, uh, Hitler is a type of the ultimate antichrist. Um, there are scriptures that talk about um, these kinds of things. For instance, um, there's the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, where Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying, him, displaying himself as being God. So this man of lawlessness that Paul talks about is someone who opposes and exalts himself. The little horn here uh, has eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth boasting great things. In Revelation 13, it talks about the beast from the sea, and it says there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months, which is another way of saying 42 months is a time, times, and half a time, like it says in Daniel, was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, just like the little horn, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints, which is a reference also to what the little horn does, and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. John in 1 John says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. That's why I say, John could say there's an Antichrist coming, but already Antichrists have appeared. People that oppose Christ. And so throughout history, there are those who are types of the Antichrist, the one who opposes God in, in very overt, significant, powerful ways. But there is an Antichrist coming. There is a villain of all villains. Just like there's a hero of all heroes, there's a villain of all villains in this story that God has ordained. And so the antagonist of the story that God has written is 
the Antichrist, who is ultimately Satan. Satan is the Antichrist, and yet there's going to be a human ultimate uh, Antichrist who is beastly in the true way. It's interesting, and Sean, Sean's reading from Psalm 73. Did you notice that he said that when this godly man struggled over the uh, prosperity of the wicked, he became like a beast before God? What does that mean? It means I wasn't thinking right. I was just acting out of my instincts and emotions, and I wasn't seeing things as I should, and I was basically defying you and denying you and against you. I was acting beastly. And that's what we see here. We find these um, kingdoms as being beastly. They're in defiance of God. They're insane. They're not thinking rightly in terms of what reality truly is. Um, And yet we don't necessarily see it that way, do we? Uh, How many times have you watched... um, a story like a Dateline story, and it talks about someone who ended up being a serial killer or something. You look at that person, you think, well, they don't look like a terrible, evil person. But the reality is, that's what they are. And so what God does in picturing kingdoms that are in defiance of him and are opposed to his people as animals or as beasts, he's telling us that's what they really are. They may appear very normal. They may appear, you know, tame, but they're really out to destroy you, and they're out to defy God. Um, And we can see all kinds of manifestations of beastliness through governments. I mean, government is basically a, a good. God created government, initiated government for our good. And so we should not be anti-government in that sense. But apart from God's uh, common grace and restraining grace, uh, governments are run by fallen sinners, and they become beastly. They become cruel. They become brutal in their desire to obtain power and maintain power um, and to control people. Um, it's interesting that uh, people will often look at um, Orwell's book, 1984, and apply it to the kinds of things that are happening today. But they'd also apply them to other uh, times as well, like under Hitler, who evidently had some kind of ministry of truth, and to Stalin, who evidently had some kind of ministry of truth. And just this week, I guess, it was revealed that uh, President Biden was authorizing or supporting the Homeland Security Department and establishing a disinformation governance board, which is a ministry of truth. They will be commissioned and authorized to determine what is acceptable speech that can be uh, given and put out there and what will be censored and what will be prevented. The reality is that kind of legislation and that kind of action is part of a tyrannical government. That's just just a fact. All tyrannical governments limit information. They try to control the narrative, and historically you can see it. It's just the way it is. And so the, the beast 
in governments, whether we're talking about 2,000 years ago or even today around the world, uh, they seek to control people in all kinds of ways. Physically, by putting them in uh, prison or concentration camps or other things like that. They try to control people by controlling the flow of information. And we just need to understand that that's the reality of the world in which we live. And yet, we need to understand that that's only part of the story. That part of the story is beastly. Part of the story is that there are villains and a ultimate villain. But the true point of the story is about the saints and most of all about the Christ. It's not most of all about Antichrist. It's most of all about the Christ and about his people. Um, So that's why we can see uh, in this story in Daniel 7, the very heart of the story is in verses 13 and 14, where it says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the point of the story is that even though there is a lot of apparent chaos, and there is a lot of opposition to God, and there are villains in the story, and there is an ultimate villain at the end of time, yet the story is really about the Son of Man. And Jesus, interestingly enough, would not take upon himself the title Christ when he was on earth, but he did take upon himself the title Son of Man. And it points back to Daniel chapter 7. And the point is, the whole story revolves around the Son of Man. Galileo was uh, basically put in prison because he taught or believed or supported the idea that the earth revolves around the sun. And throughout history, people have been persecuted because they believed that the earth and everything on earth revolves around the S-O-N. Those who believe that the reality is that everything revolves around the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, will be persecuted. And so uh, the good news is that it's not something that is going to be the case forever and ever. And ultimately, those who embrace the fact that everything revolves around the Son, S-O-N, will actually inherit the kingdom Uh, that he rules over. And so Jesus is the protagonist or the hero in the story that God has written, which is for his glory and for his people. It's interesting if you look at uh, passages like Colossians chapter 1, it says, all things have been created through him and for him. So all things have been created for Jesus through Jesus and for Jesus. That means that everything that's happening is ultimately for him, even the things that are bad, and that we can trust that God is going to work everything out in light of that. But it also says in Ephesians chapter 1 
that God put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him head as head over all things to the church. Which means that not only is Jesus ruling and reigning over all things for his own glory, but he's ruling and reigning over all things for the good of his people, for all those who trust him. Because what we see happening in in Daniel chapter 7 is, I believe, a picture of the ascension. Because it says that the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So that Jesus lives, dies, rises from the dead, and then he ascends to the Father, and he receives a kingdom. If you look at Luke 19, Jesus told a parable called the parable of the ten minas. And in the parable of the ten minas, it's about a nobleman who receives a kingdom. And he goes, well, he first of all, he uh, gives a mina to ten of his slaves, and then he leaves to go and receive that kingdom, and then he returns. And he looks at, he uh interviews all those ten servants, and he says, okay, what would you do with the mina that I gave you? But it also says that when he left and went away, the citizens of that country did not want him to be their king. And when he returns, not only does he um, find out what those servants did with the minas that he gave them, which was a form of money, but he also says those who would not have me as their king, slay them in my presence. It's a very sobering kind of thing, but it's a picture of what we see in Daniel chapter 7. It's a parable about the reality of what is pictured for us in Daniel 7, that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over everything. He's gone to the Father to receive a kingdom, which he reigns over, and one day he will come back and he will judge the living and the dead, the Bible says. And so um, what's happening now in the grand story is that Christ is ruling and reigning. But it doesn't appear that way. There are plenty of people that if we walked on the corner and said, do you believe Jesus is in charge, that he's ruling and reigning over everything? They would say, I don't see any evidence of that. I I don't believe that. If you were to ask them, do you think this little group of uh, believers here at Coast Community Church is one day going to rule over everything with Jesus? They'd say, well, I I don't see any evidence of that. And yet that's really the story. It's about a grand reversal. Because if you read Daniel chapter 7, it talks about the fact that the saints would be persecuted. Uh, The little horn makes war against the saints and overcomes them. So it looks like the saints are being defeated. looks like the saints aren't going to have anything. And yet the Bible tells us that there will be a grand reversal, that even if every believer is martyred and killed, put to death, they will be raised to rule and reign with Jesus forever. Um, If you think about the book of Esther, the book of Esther is a fascinating book for a number of reasons. It's a book in the Old Testament. In the book, there's not a mention of the name of God in the whole book. But it's a book about reversals. It's a book about Haman who's trying to kill all the Jews. And yet, in the end, Haman gets killed and Mordecai, 
is exalted and the Jewish people are exalted. There's a reversal. The first part of the book is about how it looks very dire and bad for the Jewish people. It looks like they're all going to be wiped out. The rest of the book talks about how there is a grand reversal. The way it's put in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, When the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Bible says that we naturally as sinners hate God and hate God's people. Yet in the end, in the, the story that God has written, God and all those who are trusting Jesus to be reconciled to God will gain the mastery over those who hate them. It's The story is a divine revelation of a divine reversal. That's what's happening in the story of life. It may look bleak in various ways for the people of God, and yet ultimately uh, we will be vindicated and we will be uh, reigning with Christ forever. Well, let me just make a couple applications for us and wrap things up um, as we uh, bring this to a close. The first application, I mean, there's all kinds of things we could say about this, but I just want to say, first of all, that um, God is not a slave. The reason I say that is, if it is true, and I do believe it's true, that God has ordained all that's happened in the past, he's already ordained what's going to happen in the future, so the story, in a sense, has been written, which means that God is not surprised by anything that the Biden administration does, He's not surprised by anything you and I do, that he's in charge of it all. And so he's not a slave to human decisions. He's not a slave to um, evolutionary processes. Uh, He's not a slave to, um, you know, our whims and our wishes or anything like that. God is 100% in charge. There are those who might say, well, isn't God a gentleman? And they'll talk about it in the sense of uh, he would never uh, do anything that would uh, compromise my liberty and he would always respect my boundaries, even if that means uh, I don't experience his best. Well, the reality is, if we really believe what the Bible says about the way we are naturally, I'm glad God doesn't respect my boundaries because I would never come to him for mercy. And if God simply said, I'm going to preserve your liberty, even if it means you don't get my best, I would be in trouble. So God is not that kind of gentleman. Uh, He is more gentlemanly than we could ever be, but he's not that kind of a gentleman. He is truly in charge, and he exercises that sovereignty for his mercy to be shown upon sinners. And that's what we see in this chapter when it says in verses 9 through 12, it talks about the thrones. A throne is a picture of sovereignty. It says in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 says, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deeps. Reminded me of what I've referred to at different times uh, where Susan is 
uh, has heard about Aslan in the Narnia stories, and she asks if this lion, whose name Aslan, is safe. And the beaver says, of course not. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. Which means, as king, he is in charge. And he's not safe in the sense that he's kind of a slave to whatever I permit him to do. He's not that kind of thing. I can't can't control God. I don't control God. And yet God is good. He's merciful. And he's promised to show us mercy if we will humble ourselves and come to him. So what's the application? Pray. Pray and depend on God. It says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, ask. Because he can do far more beyond all that we could ask or think. He's in charge. That's why we can pray confidently. And he's good. That's why we can pray even as sinners and ask for his mercy. Because he's good. The last thing I want to just touch on briefly is God is not a slave and man is not a victim. Um, Some might think, well, if the story has been written in some sense, both in terms of past history and future history, then isn't man just a victim of God's sovereignty? Isn't man just a victim of fate? Does it really matter what we do? Does it matter if we pray? Does it matter if we pursue God? Um, And the reality is, we have to be careful of having a victim mentality, which is very much where we are as a society. Um, We're always looking for someone to blame. In fact, there was a man um, not long ago who chose to throw himself in front of a subway train in New York. It resulted in him having both of his legs amputated, and he sued New York and received uh, $650,000 in a settlement, blaming them for the loss of his limbs. That's just one illustration of all kinds of situations in which we are prone as sinners, no matter what we choose to do, to blame people for the consequences of our actions. We blame God and we blame others. And yet the Bible says not only is God's throne, which is pictured here prominently in Daniel 7, as a throne of sovereignty, It's also pictured as a throne of judgment. That's why it has fire coming out from the throne. It's a picture of holiness. It's a picture of judgment. But it's not a picture of injustice. It's a picture of justice, which means that every person who's a part of the story is treated justly by God. Even though everything is ordained by God, all of us are fully accountable to God for our choices and our actions. We're fully accountable for our sin. Now, does that, does that mean there's no victims of injustice? No, there, there are people who are unjustly treated, mistreated. But in terms of our sin, we are personally responsible for our sin. We can't blame other people. And we can't blame God who writes the story for it either. But the encouraging thing is, as I said before, is that God judges righteously and he's merciful. That's why Jesus could say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we look at the story, we realize that God's in charge of the story, and that 
He's not limited by us, and therefore we can go to him for what we need. And as sinners, we need to take responsibility for our sin. And there is mercy that is offered us. That Aslan is not safe, but he is good and he is merciful. And so the final point is simply that the point of the grand story that's pictured for us in Daniel 7 is it matters who your king is. It matters whether or not your king is the little horn, the Antichrist, or other ungodly kings, so to speak. Or is the king of your life, the son of man, the son of God, Jesus, is he the king? Uh, as I mentioned before, Bob Dylan uh, wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. Uh, doesn't matter who you are. Um, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil represented by the Antichrist or the little horn, or it may be the Lord um, represented in this chapter as the son of man, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And a couple times in this chapter, it talks about the fact that uh, all the nations will serve Jesus. And that is a good deal. Who wouldn't want to serve perfect love? Who wouldn't want to serve perfect joy? Who wouldn't want to serve perfect peace? Who wouldn't want to serve perfect righteousness? That's what our hearts long for. We long for joy, peace, righteousness, love. And the true king of all kings is Jesus. That's why I've mentioned before S.M. Lockridge. He talks about his king. I'm not going to read all that he has to say about that, but he, he exalts Jesus as his king. And he simply asks the question, uh, do you know him? Do you know my king? My king is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is limitless in his love. And he has had no predecessor and will have no successor. He will always be king. And that's a good thing. Do you know him? Is he your king? And so for us, the question is, how am I going to find peace in the midst of a chaotic world? It's by resting in the one who is truly king and will one day reveal himself to this world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just help us today as we think about the big picture of, of what you've ordained, what has already happened in history and what will one day happen in history. But help us to see that the true hero of the story is the Lord Jesus. Help us to see that the true villain is Satan and the Antichrist and all those who would embrace a rejection of God, a rebellion against God. And I pray that for all of us here, we would ask ourselves, uh, where are we in the story? Are we still among those who would reject the rule and reign of Christ? Or are we of those who have embraced Jesus as king and look forward to the day when he will reveal himself for who he really is and look forward to the day when we will reign with him. 
Father, I pray for those here this morning who haven't yet turned from their sin and entrusted themselves to the true King, Jesus. I pray that you grant them grace to do so even this day. And for those of us who have confessed our sin and pray that you would strengthen our faith and trust you to do what only you can do to bring about the grand reversal, to bring all that's happening to its proper conclusion for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen. If you would, let's prepare for the Lord's Supper. If you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would invite you to join us for the Lord's Supper. If not, we'd love to share with you how you can do just that.